lot of people kind of have the impression that, oh, yeah, we understand behavior. Actually, we have a really poor understanding of behavior. Uh, and I just attended our International Congress uh, in earlier in August, uh, and a researcher there, Irene Kammerlink, uh, really emphasizing looking at, at micro behaviors. We, we really don't understand the continuity of behavior over time, and then the meaning of, of, of smaller, smaller behaviors. Um, like even the nose to nose contact between a sow and a piglet. What what is what is going on there? Um, so now with with some AI and automated uh, technology, certainly we can gather uh, much better data on on what animals are doing over time and and the power of of our our new new uh, you know uh, systems. We can we can analyze this um, certainly much better than we did in the past. And the interaction between individuals, and I think it's really going to help us to understand, um, yeah, that, that those individual differences. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada, Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter, Ontario, and Demeter, Quebec. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Swine Veterinary Partners offers a full range of animal health and production services to Canadian pork producers. We approach health management through personalized solution with concern for profitability while taking into account performance and the well-being of your animals. Welcome, everybody, to today's uh, Swine at Canada podcast. I am your host, Dan Columbus, and with me today, I have Dr. Jennifer Brown, who is trying to enjoy retirement, but we keep calling her back <laughs> to, to participate in these things. And so, but before you retired, uh, Jen was a uh, research scientist in ethology at the Prairie Swine Center. So welcome, Jen. Thank you, Dan. Yep. yep. Nice to be here. And as you say, not not fully retired, but it's because I enjoy what I do so much. So, uh, you know, I just can't, can't just leave it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that happens a lot. You, you you retire, but then you just keep going because you enjoy you enjoy it so much. But we're very happy to have you here and and appreciative that you agreed to to do this. So um, before we get into today's topic, just because there might be some people out there who don't know who you are or what you've done, so I'll just ask you to give a little right. bit of background uh, on yourself and and your journey. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of a. a behavior scientist, but it came to me as kind of a, a later career. I, I started out in, in, uh, in biochemistry and, and toxicology in Prince Edward Island, and then I did some uh, uh, clinical chemistry research there uh, on the commercial side. Uh, then I decided I, I needed to follow my heart, and I always enjoyed uh, 
animal behavior and, and uh, behavior research. And so then I uh, started a PhD at the University of Guelph uh, in, in uh, swine behavior, uh, looking at temperament and, and handling experience and how that influences uh, market pigs and, and their stress response and meat quality. So yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoyed that uh, time at Guelph. And then uh, just as I finished up my PhD, I, I uh, landed a job in Saskatchewan at Curry Swine Center and got to continue that work, uh, first working with Harold Donu uh, at the Curry Swine Center, a uh, really nice program that he had developed, uh, focusing a lot on, um, you know, uh, stress in market pigs, but also a lot of work on uh, group housing for sows and, and seeing that change coming to the industry. And uh, so I got to continue that work in group housing at Curry Swine. And as you know, Dan, uh, yeah, and any other area where uh, you know, pig behavior or, or welfare issues have come up uh, in Canada, I hear our code of practice. We had the pain control at castration that was implemented. So how do we, how do we develop that and, and implement that on farm? And uh, yeah, uh, done a lot of work. Uh, new technologies coming along, infrared technology, using that to... Uh, Again, predict uh, stress as an indicator of, and yeah, the stress response, really non, non-invasive uh, technique. Uh, and then we could predict meat quality and maybe manage pigs differently. So, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun in my time at Furry's Wine Center, as, as you, can, you can tell. And I'm well aware because we've been colleagues for at least the last eight years since I've been there. <laughs> but also at Guelph because we there at the same time, too. So kind of followed you around. Yes. <laughs> I get so that leads pretty well into the topic of today, which is ecology and welfare and the work that you've been doing. And I'll use your own words in the, in the email that you said. It's like, okay, so, you know, why do we want to study this? You know, and you even said, like, a lot of people will say, don't we, don't we know everything? So I guess what's, what's the draw right. and why, why do you feel that, you know, this is an area of importance? For sure. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really, uh, it, it all seems to be coming together more and more over time. Uh, with with our access to uh, uh, better computers and and modeling, a lot of people working now on automated measurement of behavior. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, we a lot of people kind of have the impression that oh yeah, we understand behavior. Actually, we have a really poor understanding of behavior. Uh, and I just attended our international congress uh, in earlier in August, uh, and a researcher there, Irene Kammerlink. Uh, really emphasizing looking at, at micro behaviors. We, we really don't understand the continuity of behavior over time and then the meaning of, of, of smaller, smaller behaviors, um, like even the nose to nose contact between a sow and a piglet. What, if, what, is, what is going on there? Um, so now, with, with some AI and automated uh, technology, certainly we can gather uh, much better data on. on what animals are doing over time and, and the power of, of our, our new, new uh, you know, uh, systems, we can, we can analyze this um, certainly much better than we did in the past and the interaction between individuals. And I think it's really going to help us to understand, um, yeah, that, that those individual differences, uh, you know, and, and genetics companies, certainly they, they recognize that they, there may be, uh, an importance for selecting on specific behaviors, <clears throat> but we know that yeah, the heritability of them is 
is moderate to weak. Uh, but certainly aggression is, is one of the most important ones that we recognize and is also one of the most heritable ones. So now we can develop uh, really uh, automated tools to help uh, pick out these behaviors and select uh, for those behaviors. Because certainly uh, manual observation of behavior is a very tedious task. And it's very discouraging for a lot of students. You know, we often... Uh, record video of pigs, and then they've got to sit for hours and manually transcribe that information. You know, maybe we have uh, individual markings on the pig so you can actually pick them out of a group and follow that individual behavior, but incredibly time-consuming and and really not that uh, rewarding. Uh, but if we could get automated systems to do some of this work for us, uh, like they do with the mice in medical research, uh, yeah, I think we're going to really advance that. And and as you know, Dan, I, I talk about the, the connection between behavior and nutrition. And, and we're really starting to understand that now. For, for years, we were kind of worlds apart. Uh, you know, what happened in the stomach wasn't related to the behaviors that were going on in the brain. But now, now it's, it's exciting, really, to see that, that understanding of the microbiome and the gut-brain access uh, access. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really going to help us understand yeah, the animal and that, that individual variation in, in metabolism. And, and really, uh, I think we can, we can use that uh, to improve yeah, uh, pigs and, and management going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. As the nutritionist, you know, we tend to look at it as just feed intake behavior. When do they go? How much do they eat? And kind of leave it at that. So, you know, it, you know, I agree it would be nice to get a little bit deeper and start making those connections. Like, why exactly are they doing this and how can we adjust that? So, yeah. Yeah. But we're so early in our understanding of the microbiome, too. Uh, but I really hope uh, we, we get some, some really good uh, data f- from that microbiome analysis to help us understand what, it, what is going on with the different uh, microbiome uh, yeah, biome populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you, you, I, you mentioned the code of practice, and I, you know, I think it, it, it's been clear just for me watching that. Okay, this provides a good opportunity to be like, well, what areas do we need to study in, right? For 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 the work that you've done, and you you've done a number of those things. I just want maybe comment on you know how much it it kind of dictates the research you do and then on the on the verse the reverse right the the work that you're doing how does that uh, affect the code right right i think that's that's a good good question dan uh certainly yeah a lot of focus there on on group housing for sows and yeah just putting in a grant recently i got the feedback saying well you know don't we know how to manage sows in groups and don't we know everything about that well, the, the fact is we really don't, you know, uh, I just completed a study last year with a really good uh, uh, student, Jessica Niehoff at Price Wine and, and looking at, uh, you know, dynamic mixing of groups versus versus static groups with that early, early mixing. So uh, a little bit riskier time to mix sows when they're just, uh, you know, before implantation and they've just been bred. That first week is really the uh, a good opportunity, and, and a lot of producers are doing that early mixing, but various varying success, right? Uh, you, you can really hit uh, impact your farrowing rate if you don't do it well. And that was the interesting, uh, really interesting result from that study was that the uh, 
the the early mixed sows uh, when it was a static group you know we, we thought oh static group uh of 25 sows that's going to be more stable well it might be more stable through the course of gestation than a dynamic group where you're adding more and more sows and taking them out uh but really what we saw was a really uh a terrible impact on those early mixed static groups uh, because they had a lot more aggression uh, than the than the early mixed dynamic groups. With the dynamic groups, uh, you're adding uh, we added eight uh, or removed and added eight eight sows at each mixing monthly. And so, because it was only a small fraction of the group that was new, uh, there was much less aggression in those open pens. And uh, yeah, we had the the best performance in that early mixed dynamic group in terms of of farrowing rate. And then the poorest in the early mixed static groups. And then we compared that to our, our late mixed uh, static groups, which is our basically our standard practice at, at Ferry Swine Center. So after, uh, you know, uh, four to five weeks uh, gestation when they were mixed in static groups, they, they were kind of in between. But yeah, that the, the best best performance was in those dynamic groups. And that was that was a surprising result to us. That's still to recognize that the dynamic groups Throughout gestation, they did show, you know, more ongoing aggression, but it wasn't severe. It wasn't severe enough to impact uh, the pregnancy. And then, uh, yeah, and that was reflected in their lesion scores. So, yeah, they had uh, higher lesions. But, of course, the, the greatest number of lesions occurred right at that first mixing event, and the dynamics had the least. And then, yeah, we, we could see in the in the video uh, of the behaviors at, at mixing that the, the that early mixed static group had the much higher levels of aggression. Uh, so yeah, these these were not results that we really anticipated. We we thought you know that that repeated mixing of the dynamic group would have a uh, you know a negative impact on them. But it's that early early aggression that occurs with that early mixing that really seemed to uh, negatively impact the the, uh, the farrowing rate in that static group. So, yeah, we, we still have things to learn, uh, and certainly the, the group size is going to have an influence there. Uh, but, but in talking to the commercial groups that are going to, uh, to ESF systems, this is, this is very relevant to them because they're, they're seeing that older styles are actually performing very well uh, in, the, in the ESF system, but it's that first and second parity uh, styles that are really showing uh, you know, poor, uh, poor breeding at second parity and, uh, yeah, poor farrowing rates because of that, the, the stress of that initial learning of the system and, and entering a large group. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things that we could do, uh, to better prepare the, the gilts for, for that system. Uh, so, so still quite a lot of work going on in there. Uh, but yeah, you were asking me a, a bigger question about, so yeah, uh, that that information will will definitely go into the code and hopefully help producers as they transition to group housing. Uh, but then, yeah, uh, we we will see what what goes on in the future. Certainly, looking to Europe and and what's what the ongoing pressure to uh, to uh, not restrict the sow in her movement um, after after group gestation, I guess we'll be probably looking at, at the, the farrowing crate because certainly that's, that's been a, an issue in, in, uh, in Europe and they, they're 
transitioning uh, in most countries to to uh, you know loose loose farrowing pens. So maybe some some restrictions. So you have the option to uh, to close the sow in for you know maybe a couple of days before farrowing and and then some days following farrowing, but then um, opening it up. So that's that's certainly in another area of of interest uh, for for behavior scientists. Like you said, so so much more work that needs to be done in that. I find it interesting when you're talking about, you know, your outcomes in your in your mixing study, because um, a, a lot of times we get caught in um, the productive outcome, right? And we think, oh, they're still producing, so the welfare is is fine, right? Or we assume right. that, but not necessarily. So I I find it interesting with that one because you know you saw the higher um, higher pregnancy rate or, or or, or I, I can't remember the exact uh, term you yeah, use, yeah, right? But you had yeah. rate, but you had that longer, like more more sustained aggression. So is that something that mm-hmm. would be acceptable versus like the initial like more more exactly aggression? Yeah, exactly. Some- it's it's a bit of a trade off there, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and and certainly, yeah. We had a group of twenty five sows, so you're going to see more impact of, of that aggression on that smaller group. Once you get to these larger uh, ESF pens of uh, 200 plus sows, you would probably see, uh, yeah, less, less aggression uh, because yeah, they adopt a more uh, a passive approach to, uh, to competing uh, with one another. Uh, but it, it emphasizes really what, what the take home has been for, for many of us uh, scientists looking at group housing is that management is really key. Uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the complex thing about group housing is it, it can be done in so many different ways. We all know how a, a, you know, a gestation crate or a gestation stall operates and how to feed a sow and how to check a sow. But then when you come to, to group systems, uh, there's so many different variations and, and how not just what we do, but how, how it's managed. And that does seem to have such a huge impact uh, on, on the sows and their performance. So we really need to, to fine t- tune those skills. Um, you know, and initially we thought we were very optimistic, certainly uh, ESF uh, automation is taking care of, of a lot of the business. And so hopefully that'll give more time to barn staff to, to have more uh, you know, hands-on animal skills. Um, but then what I, what I have seen in some commercial barns is that, you know, they're just driven by then their, their automated list. And those are the animals that they're looking for. And then they don't see a lot of the other issues that might be occurring in the pen. So yeah, automation is, is a great tool, but then I still, we still really need to, to find good people that, uh, that can see the animals and, and, and uh, yeah, and treat them accordingly. Uh, so I'm hoping to work now with some ESF records and not just use it to identify animals that haven't fed and why hasn't she fed, but can we, can we read that data, uh, understand when there's issues based on the feeding patterns? Is a group uh, more stable or less stable based on their, their uh, feed order? What, what other information can we gather from this big data uh, that's going to help us to manage the sows better and, and yeah, see when there's problems and, and address those problems in a, in a more timely manner? Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's clear from your, from your career, I think, right, uh, at Prairie Swine that, you know, they put in this thing that, oh, we have to do loose sow housing by, well, now it's 2029, I think. 
Um, but there really was like, well, okay, but how do we do this, right? Which has led to uh, a, a lot of work that you've done. And I th- think you're very well known for as the Lusau housing <laughs> researcher and, you know, sure. kind of consultant for going forward. So clearly a lot that we've learned already, you know, with the work that you've done, but a, a long way to go. And it's all always those little, like, the, the, the different yeah, dynamics exactly. and different that's, groups that's and actual, actual management factors that that are very difficult to measure and, and, and assess. What is, what is the secret of, of good management? Uh, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things and, and yeah, hard just to write a formula or to include that information in a, in a paper. We're always focused more on, on what we do and then instead of how we do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you, you've done some other stuff, I guess, switching gears a little bit, right? You, you've done some other work related to the code and I, one that comes to mind is the pain management in, in piglets. So maybe uh-huh. just ask you to talk a little bit about that stuff. Sure. Yeah. No, that was a, it's been an interesting area and certainly, uh, yeah, pain control has been adopted in, in Canada, certainly uh, for, to treat the post-procedural pain. Certainly we're not, uh, not really addressing the pain at castration, uh, but that's, uh, that's another, another problem for another day it requires different, uh, different drugs and, um, uh, but the, uh, the use of NSAIDs and Medicam, uh, ketoprofen, uh, has been widely adopted. And, and certainly that's, uh, 2016, July, 2016 was the, the adoption date. And I think we, mm-hmm. we, uh, we nailed that pretty well. And that's because, uh, of the support of the veterinarians, right? They, the vets are, you know, recognizing the code and working with producers to implement that, uh, but then also with the code that required in, enrichment, right? So enrichment's on the, on the other side of the fence. It's like, well, it's, it's been very slow uh, to adopt enrichment. And, you know, that's supposed to be implemented uh, across the farm uh, at all, uh, all stages of production. And so, yeah, uh, again, there's, there hasn't been a lot of support for producers to implement that. And, and, and often not a lot of, hard hard evidence of the benefits that you're going to receive as well as the complications of you know biosecurity uh, uh manure pit management um but uh, yeah we've we've been uh doing some research on on that side and 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 uh, trying to find practical things that that producers can implement here in uh fully slatted or partially slatted systems uh that are not going to cause problems that are that are going to um yeah reduce issues like tail biting and, and, and hopefully occupy animals. Uh, yeah. In a, in a positive way. Uh, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's an area I'd really like to work on uh, with, with producers going forward, uh, try and find ways that we can, we can provide enrichment to pigs. That's really going to uh, benefit production as well as just uh, benefiting the animals themselves. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like we said before, right. When you're focused on the productive outcome, it, it, it makes some of these issues a little bit hard to look at or to even promote to, to producers because if they don't see right. that production, yeah. right? And then, yeah, pain control ca- castration was certainly one of those areas. You know, it's more a bit more time and you have to kind of figure out how am I going to do my processing? Uh, because, yeah, it was pain control, not just uh, for castration, but also for tail docking. Uh, so, yeah, we had to kind of readjust how we did our, our processing so that it's all happening at once. So we only have that one, uh, one injection or, or oral administration of, of 
uh, of an mm-hmm. NSAID to treat that pain. So, yeah, we thought there would be more more pushback on on that uh, from the code, but uh, with the assistance of, of producers and uh, and the and the veterinarians, and then kind of you know streamlining that processing uh, part, the yeah, it's been implemented fairly fairly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so then I guess because you brought it up when when it comes to the enrichment, right? Are there things that you found or that, that maybe work particularly well or things that surprised you in some of the work yeah. that you've done with that? Um, yeah, uh, I think one of the most important areas where we really haven't provided enrichment is in the nursery uh, because I think the, uh, the feral environment is kind of relatively in, enriched as it is. The sow is in there. And there's quite a few things going on in, in the, in the farrowing crate, uh, but then they get to nursery and they're mixed for the first time. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's an important area to provide enrichment, and it's very easy to provide enrichment to, uh, to young animals, uh, as as opposed to finisher pigs. You know, they they'll destroy almost anything, right? Finisher <laughs> pigs is, is is more challenging, and then also sows because sows are largely interested only in in some extra feed. That's the the big motivator for sows, and then how do you provide that without? Uh, you know, causing more aggression and competition, uh, especially in the south. But yeah, young pigs, you could give them uh, dog toys or uh, we've used cotton rope quite a lot. Uh, that works quite, quite well. You tie a few knots in it uh, and, and that they, they really enjoy that. Uh, yep. Chewing, chewing on a cotton rope suspended in, in the pen. Um, yeah. And like I say, there's these, uh, uh, you know, uh, rubber toys with with prongs on them that they can they can chew on so yeah enriching the the younger pigs is is it's a pretty simple task i i imagine that maybe we should have like a an old dishwasher in the in the in the nursery wing that we could throw these toys in because (laughs) they certainly do need to be washed between uh between uh, room fills yeah. Uh, so something like that would be useful instead of having them sit in a stinky bucket or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, just to make it simple. Uh, but yeah, cotton rope is easily available and then you can just uh, discard it uh, between room fills. Um, so that's, that's certainly an easy area. And then, yeah, the finisher pigs actually, you know, that's uh, the most, you know, costly uh, time when you're going to see uh, the tail biting behaviors or flank biting these damaging behaviors. I have a master's student, uh, Abby Tillotson, there now. And so she's trying to uh, follow pigs with enrichment or without enrichment uh, and then uh, swapping them over and then following them right to the uh, the packing plant and looking at meat quality. So yeah, we'll have her, her results in the next uh, two months. She's running her last replicate now. And hopefully we can demonstrate a value of, of enrichment there because that's that's a problem with a lot of enrichment studies. It's, it shows, oh, we, we've reduced aggression and we've re- reduced maybe lesion scores, but not following the pigs all the way to market so you can actually demonstrate a value to the producer. Uh, so that's what we've tried to do in this study, but uh, we'll have to wait on those results. Well, we'll have to have you back. Later in your retirement, we'll still have you back <laughs> yes. to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and. Um, I know you've done some work on on changing the enrichment continuously, right? So I think that was in sows. 
so maybe like did you find that was was that more effective at keep at, 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 well, at introducing the the enrichment or you know theoretically it is but i don't know that we actually were able to pull that out of the analysis uh certainly uh, every time you're you're changing the enrichment you're adding to the novelty but it, in sales as i say again um yeah when we provided uh, a nutrition based enrichment that's that's what they really wanted uh but it was a dispenser so they had to kind of rotate the dispenser and then we had uh pens with one in it and or or two or three and certainly having more of them uh you know more sows were able to engage but yeah when when you have a nutrition based enrichment like that they compete for it and so you could potentially be causing more aggression unless you have it you know that that's the beauty of straw because we in- included that as, as like a positive control. We know straw works. So we included that in, in one of our rotations. And sure, it's, it's lovely because we had this nice big solid area. We were able to spread it out and everybody gets to enjoy, you know, chewing on some straw or, or nosing around in straw. Unlike these individual little dispensers, which, you know, one, one sow, one dominant animal is going to just uh, control that thing. And, and uh, so yeah yeah straw continues to look like a very good enrichment uh uh much to the you know producers are not not always that that willing to to implement it you know again biosecurity concerns you've got to bring it in the barn where are you going to store it somebody's got to deliver it to the animals i you know i've seen some nice european systems where you know they have a, a nice conveyor that can deliver it uh to animals around the barn which is which is very great, but uh, you know a, a lot of uh, investment in that. Not so, always pit uh, friendly either. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, they've used it successfully with with liquid systems in, yeah. in Europe. Uh, yeah, little dispensers and racks. But yeah, actual imp- implementation is you know it's it's a it's got to be a daily chore. Um, and like I say, the mm-hmm. storage is another concern. So it's it's not easy, and and we recognize that. So that's why we continue to to look for other alternatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very very interesting. Hopefully, we can you can or you because I don't do that, but you can find uh, so, some some recommendations and show the benefit to the producers. I think that'd be that would be great. Um, yes. The 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 other area I'm interested in in, in hearing from. Uh, so the, having the inside knowledge of what you've been working on, I have the benefit of asking you about these things. So I, I know this was a code uh, requirement too, was with pig transportation. I know you've done some of that. And especially in Western Canada, where we do t- look at like a very long distances sometimes for the transport. And so I know you've been, you've been doing that work. So maybe just talk some of the, what you, what you've been doing in there and some of your findings. Sure, so- sure Dan. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Um, yeah. In the past, I've done some some transport of of, of market pigs, uh, especially in Western Canada, but a little bit in the east. And then more recently, uh, I've done some nice work uh, with uh, uh, collaborators at the University of Guelph, uh, uh, um, Ontario Vet College, uh, on on wiener pig transport. And um, we've had some really good uh, cooperation from industry, getting some some records, looking at the mortality rates in in uh in uh, wiener pigs uh in transport and the interesting thing is the seasonal effect is is the the biggest factor uh affecting mortality 
but it's different between Eastern and Western Canada. Certainly in East, in the East, we see uh, more, more mortality in the summer months due to those, those higher temperatures we see in Eastern mm-hmm. Canada and that higher, higher relative humidity. Whereas in Western Canada, it's the winter uh, that is the, has the most impact on pigs. Again, yeah, we've got the much colder temperatures and, and uh, potentially longer transports. Uh, you know, certainly transport duration was also uh, a factor, um, but, uh, but not, as, not as clear uh, an impact as, as season. So that was on uh, records of uh, years worth of, of data of transports. And so now we're working uh, with partners in the East and actually trying to uh, narrow it down to specific compartments within the trailer uh, because that's one one of the main findings we had with the market pig research was um, that specific compartments, huge variation. So we did uh, with the market pigs, uh, you know, uh, six, 12 and 18 hours of transport. And we thought, oh, yeah, these these different transport durations are going to have a you know, longer transport is going to have a big impact on the animals. But what we found was that that com- variation among compartments on the same trailer had a greater impact on the animals than did this transport duration. So if you were in a, in a bad compartment on a long transport, well, that was going to really have an impact. But a good compartment uh, on a long transport, you were just as good uh, with an 18-hour transport as a six-hour. So that was a really uh, important revelation, mm-hmm. uh, the impact of that huge variation within a trailer. So we're trying to dig into that now with uh, ongoing data collection in in, uh, in Quebec uh, for the wiener, wiener pigs because we know again the compartment is going to be a, a factor in trying trying to pull out some of that data. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's, a, it's an interesting area and a, and a challenging one to do research. Uh, we really need the, the cooperation and the collaboration of, of uh, industry partners to get that information. And yeah, that's really. That's really interesting. And I know that the code had put, you know, time limits and stuff like that on looking at duration of transport, but you're saying that that's not necessarily the factor. It's more the, the where they are in the trailer. Yeah. So do you see, yeah. do you see any potential like changes to the code or adjustments based, based on some of this? And yeah. maybe the focus needs to be somewhere I'm else. hoping so. Yeah. I would really like to see, uh, you know, we, the, a market pig is, is so different from a wiener pig, right? They're <laughs> very different body weights, different uh, abilities to withstand these these different challenges. So it would be nice to see eventually uh, different requirements for a market pig versus versus a nursery pig, and then also mm-hmm. yeah, recognizing uh, yeah what is the impact of season because that's obviously uh, temperature uh, sensitivities and and the interaction with duration. So yeah, just putting a, a duration limit is really not not that useful not that that helpful um again it gets it gets more complex than that and and so then it's it's really hard for regulators you know i I, it's it it will be a challenge but i think this information will really really help uh to to uh point towards the necessity of of more specific guidelines uh based on temperature and then we really need to understand more the the microclimate within the trailer. So mm-hmm. yeah, monitoring systems uh, within the trailer to, to help identify yeah, when we're, when we're exceeding thresholds and, uh, and to manage pigs better on transport. Yeah. 
If, if anything, having this stuff show up in the code kind of jumpstarts the research into that area that might not have been mm-hmm. necessarily been looked at before, right? So uh, it, it, it does have yes. a benefit. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it feeds back and forth to regulators and the code and the research. It's like, where where do we need to go next to to improve things? And uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's it's an ongoing process. Uh, this one being part of that for sure. Yeah. So um, be- before I ask you where, where things are going, I'll give you the opportunity if there's something that we haven't touched on that you'd like to, um, <laughs> now, now is your opportunity. Otherwise, we'll talk about where, where you see this, this going, some right. of the upcoming research, or maybe even just a, a broad air, like where, where is the mm-hmm. going? Yeah, yeah. Like I say, uh, with group housing, it'd be nice to be able to use more uh, uh, ESF records and kind of uh, um, develop some algorithms to really help us understand what's going on in those systems uh, and then kind of fine fine tuning the management uh, so that we're getting, you know, we've, we've clearly demonstrated you could get as good production with group gestation as with stalls, but it, it, it depends both on the, on the system design and the management. So, so getting that that information kind of nailed down a little bit better uh, so that uh, that we're getting the, the actual benefit of, of the investment of into these uh, into these group housing systems. Uh, and then, yeah, looking, looking, I'm, I'm kind of interested to move on to the farrowing crate environment because it's a very complex environment between the sow and her piglets. I, I would love to see some, some ability to, uh, you know, uh, provide more social interaction at an early age. You know, uh, Yolan Seddon's done some of that work at Prairie Swine, uh, and and certainly other studies have shown. You know, in the wild, pigs are able to uh, socialize uh, with the sounder. The sow brings her piglets out uh, to the rest of the herd um, when they're like you know uh, fourteen days old. Whereas if we keep them in a farrowing crate with the sow uh, for even that extra week uh, with a three-week weaning, uh, we're really missing that, that window of, of socialization, understanding that those, those piglets, they're precocial. It's not like a, a human infant that you know, takes a year to really kind of get crawling around. Uh, these pigs, that they hit the ground, they're, they're, they're precocial. They are, I, you know, I've got I've got chickens here and, and, you know, a chick hatches out, it's ready to do everything it was, was born to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we really need to take advantage of that and really realize that they're not little babies. They're, they're ready to, to learn and, and we can start imprinting them and, and prepare them better for uh, a life as a sow or, or as a market pig uh, early on. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's an area for opportunity that obviously I'm, I'm interested in, as well as yeah, enrichment, integrating automation and enrichment. That's that's an area I'd like to work with. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the sky's the limit. We've got a lot of uh, interesting things happening between uh, uh, technologies and, and and automation and and understanding things because I really don't think we understand them as well as we think we do. Yeah, yeah. I would throw nutrition in there too. I would really like to get involved yeah. <laughs> in some of the joint research and really look at that, you know, yes. especially around okay. that time of weaning, right? So let, let's, we'll, uh-huh. we'll, we'll oh, focus. For sure. Yeah, I know you've we'll done a lot of work stuff. there. And yeah, the, yeah. 
and the creep feeding and what are we giving them and uh, does it yeah. matter? And yeah, again, yeah. preparing them to be, uh, to be a, a proper, proper animal. <laughs> yeah. All, always lots of questions, job security, definitely for, <laughs> for all of us. So, um, yes. So I get before we get to the the our final three questions, I'll just ask you know if there if there's something that you want our listeners to get like what one take home or two take home messages out of today's podcast, what would you hope that that those are? Uh, yeah, I I don't know when I when I teach students at university, you know, a lot of them come into class. It's, it's a fourth year course, and and they're interested in behavior, but they think they know it, you know. Because we all we all have behavior, we watch behavior all day. It's very interesting. But we, we we have this intuitive feeling that we that we understand it. But I'm I would like to say we really don't understand it that well. And what really excites me is the individual variation, right? If you look at a litter of puppies or a, you know, it's the individual variation that's really interesting. And if we can maximize. The, the value of that information. And, and I think we can, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, sorting animals based on their, uh, uh, their, their feed efficiency. Uh, that's an, that's an area of interest. But, and then how that, that metabolic rate and feed efficiency interacts with their individual, uh, personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, that's another really largely, uh, Un, unexplored area yeah we know less than we think we do and we don't know what we don't know <laughs> That's, we don't even have a clue what we, <laughs> we don't know uh yeah. but we're getting there that's the exciting part is that we are getting there you know uh-huh. we're on the trail yeah no very very exciting stuff coming forward so looking forward to, to future uh uh discussions with with you yes, and, exactly. and, and, yeah. and uh your 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 i don't want to say replacement because that i don't think you can be replaced but <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. And see, yeah, see what I comes up what, yeah 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 no i I'm, i look forward to working uh with the new person and and uh yeah continuing on yeah. in some of this work yeah for sure yeah. it's time for our famous three Okay, well, Jen, before I let you go, we have three questions that we ask all of our guests that are unrelated somewhat to the, the, the topic of the day. So our first question is, what is your favorite go-to swine resource? My go-to swine resource? You know, I'm going to have to uh, open it up, Dan, and say uh, my, my go-to behavior and welfare resource. Uh, and I love, I love David Fraser. Uh, He's a research scientist at the University of British Columbia, and uh, he's he's uh, been kind of the I don't know the father of uh, welfare research, and, and uh, he wrote a marvelous book called Understanding uh, Animal Welfare. And uh, he uh, I use it as a as a textbook for my uh, my graduate course. Very very readable and approachable. Talking about the um, you know, uh, the cultural history of our understanding of, of animal welfare and, and welfare, you know, it's, it's kind of got a negative connotation when you say the word, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people kind of default saying, well, well, we'll just say well-being instead of using that welfare word. It's like, well, I think we've we got to get over that. <laughs> 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 and recognize that, yes, we're, we're talking about, uh, yeah, 
how the animals are doing and how are, how are they coping in their environment. Um, and uh, yeah, he goes through the physiology and the behavior. Uh, very, very nice, thorough book, uh, giving you a better understanding of, of what are we talking about when we're, we're, we're saying animal welfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I highly yeah. recommend yeah, thanks. And lots, lots of big references in there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I mean, it, it's on the topic, right? It, ha- it has a, it has a, uh, mm-hmm. uh, an application. So I think it fits. <laughs> yeah. so, and then, um, you know, Timothy Grand and she's another, uh, another go-to source. Uh, yeah, and of course. Various, various <laughs> books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, our our next question then is thinking outside of agriculture or maybe behavior, right? Would what would be like a favorite book or or, or something that you would recommend? Uh, just this could be right. anything, right? So I know it could be anything. Well, I'll just say the the book I'm reading now is uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, um, "Love in the Time of Cholera," and I read this book thirty three, almost thirty four years ago when I was in hospital and my son was born. <laughs> and I just picked it up again the other, the other week and I'm reading it. He won a Nobel Prize in literature for this book. And it's uh, uh, kind of uh, what they call magic realism. Uh, yeah, very, very, very realistic portrayal of, of these characters, very interesting characters and, and, uh, and love and life. And so I'm, I'm enjoying that as a kind of a, a distraction to my daily, uh, daily business. <laughs> yeah. Loving uh, the time of cholera. Mm-hmm. Definitely have to look that one up. I'm always looking for recommendations on, on what to read sure. outside of, outside yeah. of academics, right? <laughs> give, give the yeah. brain a break. So, okay. Um, and our, our final question is, is that when you, when you think back to successful swine professionals, or I would even broaden this to, to leaders in general, right? Like what is a characteristic that makes somebody successful or, or a, a, a better leader than say some other ones? Right. Oh, I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of, a lot of really good people. Uh, you know, oh, Tina Wadowski, my supervisor comes to mind and, and Harold Ganyu at Perry Swine Center, uh, Terry O'Sullivan at OBC. Uh, I worked with a lot of really good, good leaders in the swine industry, uh, other people uh, with the National Pork Board in the U.S. The ability to, to pull it all together, uh, you know, and uh, understand, uh, yeah, the producer's perspective, the industry side of things, and then the swine side. And then also have a good uh, rapport with, with students and, and, and reaching out and sharing information. Uh, one, one skill I really, really enjoy is, is brainstorming. You know, somebody say, uh, oh, I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, yeah, let's, let's throw some ideas around. Let's not be super critical. Let's, let's just think about this for a while and, and figure out what, what can work. Uh, yeah, so... Um, I would say, uh, yeah, that that ability, that that open mindedness, while while taking so many things into consideration, uh, uh, some some really powerful skills there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I would agree. I always like that question because it gives me areas that I could potentially work on in my own, <laughs> uh, you know, leading and and working with the industry. So yeah, I think that's right. that's great. I, Students, I, I kind of, I kind of was fearful of, of teaching it when I first started teaching, 
but then once once you get your feet went into it and, and you get some really good students asking some good questions, I, I really uh, I really ended up enjoying my time teaching, uh, which which wasn't natural to me to begin mm-hmm. with. But now now I really uh, really enjoy that role. No, I'm sure. I'm sure the students are, are going to miss you unless you're coming back to, to teach in your retirement, like some oh, other people. Well, I agree to do a couple lectures, but yeah. Yeah. So we're not, <laughs> we're not letting you go quite yet, but it's only because you're, 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 you're great at what you do. In my, in my humble opinion. <laughs> okay. so, Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Well, uh, Jen, I'd like to thank you again for coming on and, and participating and, and, giving us all this great information. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, enjoyed doing it, and I really hope that uh, our audience uh, gets, some, gets some good information out of it and enjoyed it too. So th- thanks again. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure.